LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is the next big idea. Today, how anyone can make large scale change, even you. On a cool night in the summer of 1990, 50,000 fans poured into Detroit's Tiger Stadium. But they weren't there to cheer on the Tigers. They were there to hear a speech from a lean man in a Navy suit. How do I even begin to thank you, the wonderful people of Detroit and the Midwest? Right now, I wish I could climb down the stage and join you in the stands and embrace you one and all. You may recognize that voice. It belonged to Nelson Mandela, who, five months earlier, had been in prison. He'd been there for 27 years, locked away for fighting apartheid, South Africa's system of segregation and discrimination. Now a free man, he was on an eight-city tour across the United States to rally support for the anti-apartheid movement. Everywhere he went, tens of thousands of people gathered to hear his rallying cry. Let us together join hands in the struggle against racism, injustice, and national oppression. Let us together defend with all our might the human rights of all people. A few miles away, a 17-year-old boy sat on the edge of the couch in his family's living room, watching with rapt attention. Mandela's words stirred something in him because he was no stranger to racism and injustice. Slurs, shoves, punches, he'd endured them all as a skinny brown kid in a mostly white community. Yet what amazed him as he watched wasn't just what Mandela said about equity and human rights. It was the way he said it. Let me say, I respect you. I admire you. And above all, I love you. You know, the amazing thing about Mandela is how do you come out of the situation he came out of and have love and admiration as opposed to bitterness and anger? That's Raj Shaw. He was that kid 30 years ago, sitting on his couch, hanging on Mandela's every word. And it just blew me away. I mean, I was a junior or senior in high school watching on TV in my living room, and I was like, okay, I'm never going to be like him, but I'd like to do something that makes a difference in the world. And he has. When Raj was in his late 20s, after attending medical school and working on Al Gore's presidential campaign, he was offered a job at the then-fledgling Gates Foundation. Before he knew it, he was running a multi-billion dollar program to radically restructure global vaccine manufacturing in order to immunize more kids. It was audacious. Some might even say brash. And it worked. Today, that program has vaccinated nearly a billion children, and it has saved more than 16 million lives. Initiatives like that, Raj calls them big bets. As he writes in his new book, appropriately titled Big Bets, a big bet is a concerted effort to fundamentally solve a single pressing problem in your community or our world. Big bets require setting profound, seemingly unachievable goals and believing they are achievable. Raj didn't only make big bets at the Gates Foundation. He made them when he served as the administrator of the United States Agency for International Development, USAID, under President Obama, overseeing a budget of 20 billion and a staff of 10,000. 
And he's making big bets today as president of the Rockefeller Foundation, one of the oldest and biggest philanthropic organizations in the country, where he's focused on finding innovative solutions to mitigate climate change and end energy poverty. But you don't have to lead a government agency or run a nonprofit if you want to make a big bet. You can do it no matter who you are or what kind of job you have. You just have to master the methodology that Raj is going to share in this conversation. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Raj Shaw, welcome to The Next Big Idea. Thank you, Rufus. Thanks for having me. For starters, Raj, I want to say that I found your new book, Big Bets, How Large-Scale Change Really Happens, to be a multi-front assault of hope in a time when so many of us are feeling low on hope, and hope based on data and experience, not blind hope. So I found it really inspiring, and I'm looking forward to stress testing that hope in this conversation and, and hopefully sharing it with our listeners. Awesome. We need more credible hope and optimism in our lives, so thank you. Exactly right. Let's start with your story. You've had a hell of a ride in your first 50 years on the planet. Could you share a little bit about your journey, maybe starting with just your upbringing, your early dreams, and how you ended up on a path to, uh, well, today running the Rockefeller Foundation? Sure. Well, you know, I'm I'm a son of immigrant parents. My parents both came here from India in the late 60s, early 70s in a wave of immigration. They came with educational scholarships for graduate school. My dad's an engineer. My mom is an early childhood educator. But they didn't have any resources. And in fact, when they came, my grandfather actually emptied out his retirement account to buy my dad a one-way ticket to America because he thought uh, they just had this faith in this country that if you worked hard, played by the rules, your kids would have lots of chances. So that's sort of my story. I grew up in a tight-knit Indian-American community outside of Detroit, it was interesting as a child in that small community, if you were pretty good at school, you were basically expected to be an engineer or a doctor. I toyed with both, ended up becoming a doctor. But somewhere along the way, I, I just had this bug to kind of do something in public service mm. and social impact. But I had no idea how to pivot from being you know, in medical school to active in politics and public service until I actually took the leap and tried. So that's a perfect segue to your tenure at the Gates Foundation. So you become a doctor, but you decide you want to go into the public service. You volunteer for the Gore campaign. And then you find yourself at the Gates Foundation when it was just getting started. What was that experience like? And what did you learn from the, from the culture there? What I learned working with them uh, was really what a big bet is. They were willing to put a lot of money into large-scale projects to create change, but they were not willing to settle for doing good is good enough. They had read an article about 600,000 kids dying from a disease called rotavirus. Mm -hmm. In that same article, they learned that Merck was going to roll out a rotavirus vaccine in America where kids don't die. And where kids were dying, they would never get access to the vaccine. And they just said, this is wrong. We should take all vaccines that can save children's lives from easily preventable diseases and make sure the kids at the greatest risk have access to all of the same vaccines. And so what I learned from them was that you know you can be bold in your aspiration to make large-scale change happen. And there's actually a methodology to that boldness that can make it real over time. That methodology starts with the power of asking simple questions, which in this case, I think, was how much does it cost to vaccinate a single child in a low-income country? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, Bill would pull all of us into this conference room at the top of the, the building, and, and we'd sit there and try to answer these questions. But they were 
he had very simple questions. They were, you know, the goal is to vaccinate every child on the planet. There are 104 million children born every year at that time. That was a global birth cohort. Probably well under half were receiving the full complement of existing vaccines, and none were effectively receiving the new ones that were rolling out in wealthy countries. And so how do you solve that? How much is it going to cost to solve the whole problem? And that starts with knowing how much does it cost to vaccinate a single child? Multiply that by 104 million. That's your total annual cost. And then how do you go about turning the great resources and position we had? You know, Bill and Melinda put $750 million initially into creating this vaccine project. Uh, but how do we turn that amount of money into the tens of billions that would be required to actually reach everybody? And that initiative has been, I guess it's not over, it's still in progress, but I guess I think it's called Gavi, and it's immunized more than 980 million kids and saved an estimated 16 million lives. Am I getting that right? That is correct, and that's probably a, a small underestimate. And the idea that this effort over 20 years has been creative and effective enough to save more than 16 million lives, it's actually a great proof point that you can be bold and optimistic about changing the world. And if you're persistent and you use the methodology, you can succeed. When we talk about the power of asking simple questions, you know, it, it reminds me of the advantage of the beginner's mindset, you know, that, that not knowing what you're up against, coming at old problems in new ways can be an advantage. But at the same time, there's been a lot of criticism of Gates and other billionaires for being overconfident and thinking they know better than scientists and experts. Having worked closely with Bill and Melinda and many others, what's your view on this? And do you think, do you think there's sort of a double-sided element to the beginner's mindset that's applied? You know, I, I think I make the distinction between people who got very successful doing something and then just assume that that means that they know how to solve every problem in the world you know, and approach the task with the confidence, some would say hubris that comes with the fact that, oh, I built this, this great company, so now I can fix X, Y, or Z versus a culture of deep learning. And when you said beginner mind and Patty Stonecipher, our CEO at that foundation at that time, used to say, we start with a blank sheet of paper. Mm -hmm. The point wasn't show up and tell everybody what the answers are. The point was show up, ask questions, listen, travel around the world. And I, I've been in uh, in environments in rural Nigeria, sitting with Bill and Melinda in someone's home, watching them ask questions of what it's like to feed their children and how hard is it to go to the health clinic and what do you really need and care about in your life. That kind of deep time and effort spent learning is I think the distinction between making big bets and doing it for the good of humanity and approaching problems with too much hubris and too much confidence and not really respecting the fact that experts do know a lot and ultimately it's the local communities you seek to serve that know the most. I'm still unresolved on this question of how much of this work of, of, of solving some of these core problems around the world should be done by you know, philanthropic institutions versus government. So I'm inclined to ask you a, a pointed question, Raj. Do you think that anyone should have $100 billion? Do I think? That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, the the obvious answer is no. <laughs> you know, it just, I you know, I can't imagine, with with maybe the sole exception of one or two people that I think have used that kind of wealth to create transformational philanthropic impact. I think in general we should have, if not limits on wealth, we should certainly have tax rates that are cognizant of the fact that you just don't need that much wealth, and we'd be a much more effective and efficient and equitable society if we did the right things through public investment. And it's encouraging though to know that to know that government institutions based on your experience are capable of taking those resources and applying them really effectively in partnerships with other governments around the world. Yeah, you know when I ran I ran USAID for President Obama and we had at the time somewhere between a 25 and 30 billion dollar annual budget for global health, yeah. addressing hunger and poverty, promoting democratic processes in developing countries around the world. And 
you always have to be sensitive to the fact when you have great resources that you can easily overwhelm uh, these systems and be be the source of all the hubris that suppresses creativity and local content and respect for those you're serving, which is why I think it's particularly important whether you're a private philanthropy or a government agency or a policymaker in Capitol Hill or you know in any community institution, have like a deep recognition of what you don't know and an absolute yeah. desire to inquire. I When you say beginner's mind, that's what I think is the key to getting smart enough and effective enough to, to be part of these big alliances to make great things happen. That, once again, uh, Raj, is a perfect segue to the next, the next chapter of your adventure. So you found yourself running USAID at the tender age of 36. Not everyone thought you were qualified, <laughs> which you discovered when you walked into the Oval Office. Do you, do you want to share that story? Sure. Well, you know, I got confirmed and sworn in to run USAID about a week before the tragic earthquake in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. There has been a huge earthquake, magnitude 7.0, just off the coast of Haiti, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Early reports of extensive... And a disaster of this magnitude could well be an unfolding catastrophe. 250,000 people perished, 21 of 22 government ministries physically collapsed, and the United Nations building in uh, the country also collapsed and took with it the lives of many of our normal first responders and local security forces. So when President Obama asked me to lead the overall American civilian, military, and private sector response. I've designated the administrator of the U.S. Agency for International Development, Dr. Raj Shaw, to be our government's unified disaster coordinator. It was a huge undertaking. And frankly, I was brand new in the job. <laughs> I just mm -hmm. got there. Yeah. And so the next morning when we went to the Oval Office for a briefing with the president and the vice president, I was anxious. I got there a few minutes early because you certainly don't want to be late for that particular yeah. meeting. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And, uh, and, I, and they let me in early. So I walked in and, and the vice president and the president were over by the window talking to each other. And I overheard Vice President Biden say, uh, you know, are you sure about this Rod Shaw guy? He's like 30 something. He's new to Washington. He just got here. And we have this amazing leader who who runs our federal emergency management agency, Craig Fugate, who's got a lot more experience overseeing these kinds of complex responses. And uh, thankfully, President Obama saw me when I walked in and kind of walked over and was like, Raj, come in, sit down. And the next thing I know, the room was full with you know half the cabinet that was in the meeting. And I just went right into the briefing and the numbers and the tasks in front of us and, and didn't really think that much about that statement, um, although I was anxious about it. And then on the way out, I, I kind of uh, stayed behind and, and talked to Craig Fugate, who, who ran FEMA. And I put my arm around Craig and I said, Craig, I need all the help you can give me because you do have more experience than I do. And we have to do this together to succeed because it's such a huge undertaking. And, you know, he's such a great guy. He was like, absolutely. This is a moment where our country needs us. I will come back with you to, to your building. And the lesson I write about in the book from that story is called Open the Turnstiles because when we got back to our building, the USAID folks could get in, but the folks from the military services and, and Craig and the FEMA team could not. They had to stand in line. And we together convinced our security team to just open the gates and, and let people in and out for a few weeks while we were trying to organize ourselves and, and have an inclusive all of government approach to the response. And once we created that culture of one team, I just saw the best of America's public servants, whether they were in the military or not, come together and ultimately mount an extraordinary response. We we pulled more than 120 people out of the rubble through these urban search and rescue teams that literally mm -hmm. saved their lives. We were feeding more than 3 million people. Six months after the earthquake, wow. there was less diarrheal disease and infectious disease in Port-au-Prince than there was the day before because we had stood up water and sanitation, food distribution, and transitional housing in certain contexts. So, you know, you can succeed in those moments of critical need if you're mm. willing to take all the help you can get. This was one of the of the multiple fronts of, of hope that I felt reading your book, which is that 
One area in which a lot of people are discouraged is the capacity of government to get things done. And as you say, there might have been an element of the benefit of a crisis here in allowing you to cut through red tape and rally a whole bunch of resources to move very quickly. Do you think that most Americans have a false perception that government agencies are bloated and ineffective? I mean, you must have pushed up against some frustrations in your time in government, but it seems like you you, you had a pretty sanguine view of, of what government is capable of doing. Yeah, I think both are probably true, right? So I, yeah. I like the day-to-day bureaucracy of government can be very, very, very challenging to, to deal with. But in moments like the Haiti earthquake, I also write in the book about the Ebola crisis, which was a pandemic that could have been a global pandemic, but wasn't. In those moments of urgent crisis and need, people stand up, people go the extra mile, folks figure out how to overcome red tape. I was amazed by people's genuine desire to make a difference. I think that's why most people get into public service. And Mm -hmm. when you can tap Mm -hmm. into that desire to do the right thing at the right moment, I think you can motivate extraordinary leadership from folks in public service and and frankly, in all walks of life. Of course, you also got into the thicket of politics, right? <laughs> I think it was a, a year into your time at, at USAID that the Republicans had a proposal to strike the budget to zero, <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, how, how did you respond to that? My initial response was, oh, we're going to approach this with the toolkit that got me here, which was deep data analytics and and nerding yeah. out on, on the quantitative stuff. And so we did this analysis. We determined that shutting down these health programs in particular would lead to 70,000 deaths of children around the world in countries where we were doing our work. And I went up to Capitol Hill and I said that. The head of the U.S. Agency of International Development, Rajiv uh, Shah, is now saying that Republican budget cuts will kill at least 70,000 children around the world. And then I got back to my office and a friend called, Tom Vilsack, who is our Secretary of Agriculture. And he, he said, Raj, I was just with the Speaker of the House, John, John Boehner, and he's upset with what you said. And he spent a lot of his efforts trying to quietly build Republican support to get a budget for humanitarian action abroad. And he thinks this is going to undermine his efforts. So you should come up here and and speak to him and apologize. And so I did. You know, I I went up there. I said I I didn't intend to be off-putting. I was just trying to communicate data. And he gave me a list of 20, 30 uh, members of Congress, House and Senate, to go speak to and get to know. And over the next weeks, I did. And and that, in fact, helped me learn that it wasn't going to be data or public argumentation that was going to build a bipartisan coalition to allow America to lead these humanitarian efforts. It was going to be sitting with folks behind closed do- doors, talking about our values, being vulnerable, praying together, uh, making friends across the aisle with some very unlikely bedfellows. And that ultimately made a huge difference for for both that budget, but more importantly, for my tenure over many years in, in Washington. In the book, you're, you're, you're very um, positive about, I think, the potential, both the history and the future potential for Republicans and Democrats to come together to support initiatives that alleviate suffering. I mean, we're, we're living right now in a time of, of increasing partisanship, right, and, and, and polarity. Are, are, are you discouraged by that or, or, or you feel like there's a, a clear path forward to, to pull together to do important things? You know, I see it as a challenge. I, I see it as a leadership challenge that, that when you can build bridges, often behind closed doors and almost always by genuinely getting to know people based on their vulnerabilities and values, not the stuff you see on TV, you can make real progress. And if you look at our country just in the last several years across Trump and Biden administrations, Mm. we've actually had some big bipartisan efforts to invest in our economy and create a social floor under vulnerable families during COVID. Twice Mm -hmm. that was passed under President Trump on a bipartisan basis. We've passed the largest effort to reduce child poverty in this country and the child tax credit that passed as well in that context. President Biden has, of course, passed two huge pieces of bipartisan legislation to reinvest in American manufacturing and semiconductors in particular. 
and to green our economy through uh, broad investments in infrastructure all across this country. It happens and we just don't talk about it. What gets everybody's attention is the fighting and the bickering and the drama. And that I think is unfortunate, but I'm uh, super optimistic that with the right leaders and the right mindset, we can actually make huge progress if we approach it by knowing we have to do it together. And your optimism is uh, is not just a, a natural disposition or a neurochemical tendency, <laughs> but, but it's based on it's it's based on what you've seen in the last few decades. It's also based on being with people who are not like me, you know, and and mm, traveling yeah. with with very conservative Republicans and getting to learn their values and understanding. Okay, maybe they're not going to use the phrase climate change, but they'll support. Our, our efforts to help farmers adapt to climate change, if they talk to farmers and the farmers say, hey, you know, we're not able to feed our families and grow food because it's hotter and drier. And so I, having yeah, been yeah. through that, I, I believe there's more common space if we really put effort and energy into it than most people see. Yeah. Because I mean, when you look at, when you look at things like not a single Republican in Congress voting for Biden's 2022 climate bill. Those are the kind of headlines that cause people to feel a sense of despair. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Not everything is going to be, you know, <laughs> yeah. is going to be uh, visible bipartisanship, right? Yeah. But some things can be, and those are the ones we have to find and, and pursue much more aggressively. Back to the topic of, of the great work that USAID has done, many Americans have an isolationist impulse, right? And I, and I think sometimes the thinking is, there are people suffering here. Why should we be solving other countries' problems before we solve our own? What do you say to those people? Well, most people also think we're spending 10 to 20% of our federal budget solving other people's problems around the right. world, when in reality, we're spending less than 1%. And so as I've gone through communities, rural communities in Montana, urban black churches in Detroit and San Francisco, and sort of sat with people and, and explained, look, we're spending less than 1% of our federal budget. For that, we have uh, largely tamped down an AIDS crisis that was killing tens of millions of people. We've saved 16, 20 million children through vaccination efforts. We beat back an Ebola crisis that was supposed to have hundreds of thousands of cases in the United States and only had two because we took the fight to West Africa and succeeded in a difficult and highly contentious environment. And mm -hmm. we have always been, especially since World War II, the world's unquestioned humanitarian leader, mostly preventing humanitarian catastrophes that prevent instances of political instability or migration that then require our troops to go in. When people see and hear that, and they hear the military leaders in this country talk about how important this is as a forward defense of our national security, they know that it's it's both a small price to pay and it's one that is so consistent with our values that we should likely be doing more. In fact, you know what they tend to say? They'll say, oh, we're only doing a half of 1% or, or three quarters of 1% of the federal budget. We should probably be doing three or four or 5%, maybe 10%. You know? And, uh, and it's, it's just a matter of communicating that. And it's also a matter of implementing these programs using this big bet mindset, you know, measuring results, being honest about mm. what's working, what's not working. I, when I ran USAID, I shut down more than 300 programs, which was deeply controversial, but it helped wow. on both sides of the political spectrum, people see that we were going to take results measurement and performance seriously. And when you say they recommend increasing from shy of 1% to 2, 3, 5% or more of our federal budget for foreign aid, you're saying that military leaders have that view. Absolutely. They have absolutely said that over and over again. For 1% to 2% of the cost of the Afghan war, we were educating 8 million Afghan girls. We were protecting the rights of women. We were supporting a democratic process that gave local communities more voice. And we were ensuring that Afghan farmers had access to markets and, and real ability to provide for their communities. Now, that's you're not going to win a war that way, but you certainly have no exit strategy if you, if you don't succeed with those types of efforts. And they really are super marginal in terms of their, the cost structure. 
And, you know, just think about, think about the Korean peninsula, you know, yes, after, yes. after the Korean war, we helped South Korea become a modern economy. At that time, South Korea had a higher rate of hunger, a higher rate of displacement and a higher rate of infectious disease leading to under five child mortality than most of Africa. We helped that country transform itself into a modern economy. Today, there are more jobs in America created by trading with South Korea than there are trading with France. And compare that to North Korea, right across the border, yeah, right, you know, exactly. a country that is yeah. an obvious threat. We spend tens of billions, that's probably an underestimate, deterring North Korea. There's no question that our, the long-term security of our nation depends on projecting dignity and opportunity around the world. And the more we can do that efficiently and effectively and with transparency and results, the better off Americans are. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. I think it could be useful to expand on your thesis with the Big Bet mindset and what, what Big Bets are about. Uh, we, we just a few weeks ago had James Clear on the show talking about his book, Atomic Habits, which sort of makes the case that like the best way to improve your life is to make small incremental changes and build on those over time. You seem to be making the case that when we're, if we're setting out to change the world or, or rally people at scale together, there's an argument for doing things that are ambitious. Is that is that the core of it? How What's the case here? Yeah, I think that is the core of it, that bold, large-scale change is possible. And when we set the goals boldly and we have a focus on the three main components of a big bet, which are fresh, innovative solutions that allow those that goal achievement to be achievable and realistic, unlikely partners and alliances that come together to deliver that outcome, and an absolute determination to measure results and persist. I think when we do those things in the context of, of big bets, we can achieve great things. The interesting reality is as we try to do that, ultimately what you're doing are a series of small incremental actions, you know, that that ladder up okay. and add up to something transformational. So, mm -hmm. you know, when we ran the Ebola response in West Africa, the CDC estimated we'd have 1.4 million cases. Seven out of 10 people were dying when they contracted the virus. We didn't know how to beat back that virus technically at the time that President Obama made his big bet, which was for the first time in history, deploying thousands of American troops mm -hmm. in an effort to fight a disease. And what we actually did that worked was the small incremental things that were enabled by that big bet, which were listening to local community members, observing that girls and women in particular were contracting the virus when they were washing and redressing the bodies of deceased family members, and recognizing that if we intervened at that point, we could save lives. A local community came together and designed this burial team that was fully clad in protective equipment they used WHO body bags to, to keep the body safe and separate from others, then perform rituals and ceremonies to honor those individuals who passed, and then remove the body safely. And that allowed for a 70% reduction in case transmission. We scaled that up across three countries. And instead of 1.4 million cases, we had 30,000. And instead of hundreds of thousands of cases in Europe and the United States, we had two with no transmission on US soil. So, you know, it was a big bet, but ultimately it's the small incremental things 
that you do within the context of a bold aspiration that make the difference. Do you think the U.S. is falling behind other countries when it comes to big bets? I mean, we think of like the New Deal and, you know, huge bets we've made historically. Uh, You know, you could go all the way back to Abraham Lincoln signing the Pacific Railway Act in 1862, like right in the middle of the Civil War, right? (laughs) Because this big bet of building a transcontinental railroad was something that could bring the nation together. But now when I think of big bets globally, I, I often think of things like, you know, France turning Paris into the world's greenest city or China carrying out these massive development projects or uh, Lula in Brazil working to end deforestation in the Amazon. Do you think we have a big bet mentality in the U.S. right now? I think we can nurture one. I do see, I mean, I'm at the Rockefeller Foundation. We do big bets for humanity here in the United States and around the world. And that means I get to be exposed to people who are making big bets happen all the time. And I think your examples are outstanding examples. You know, my favorite Lincoln big bet example is he signed the Merrill Act to create America's land-grant universities to invest in agriculture and agricultural research during the Civil War as well. And to have that kind of a vision to say, okay, you know, to be a thriving country over the long term, agriculture was the economy we need to invest in our source of competitiveness, even as we're fighting an, an existential threat to our very existence. I mean, that takes real vision and real purpose. And I see leaders with real vision and real purpose all the time. And I tried to write about them in the book. I wrote about yeah, Mayor yeah. Mitch Landrieu and his efforts to take down Confederate statues in New Orleans and start a national movement about racial dialogue and and justice. I just, I can go on and on about the leadership I see that gives me hope that we can make big bets happen in this country. Yeah. Well, turning to some of your your current work, trying to alleviate uh, electricity poverty around the world, electricity is, is a critical piece of solving global poverty. Could you help us understand why that's true? Well, if you think about it, you know, we depend on electricity all day long to turn our labor into productivity, economic growth, goods and services, and opportunity for for job creation and human improvement in every community around the planet. And the basic way we've provided electricity to communities for 150 years has been burn fossil fuels in large plants, connect that to grid systems and connect those grids to homes and businesses and see what happens. And that effort, which has obviously transformed the face of the human condition over time, has also left out a lot of people. There are almost a billion people who live and consume less than one less electricity per day than it takes to power one light bulb and one small home appliance. And those are the billion we call energy poor. And the truth is big coal plants connected to grids are likely never to reach them for a variety of reasons, partly because they're not politically powerful and they're very poor. So people don't think they can pay for it. But we have found that new renewable technology, solar mini grids tied to grids that connect to people's homes and and businesses, and then they can pay by smart texting. We found that those types of solutions are now working very, very effectively to help these communities join the modern global economy and have real opportunity instead of being trapped in poverty. So we made our big bet reaching a billion people who live in energy poverty with renewable technology. And that's creating wealth, creating jobs, and creating opportunities. My favorite example, which I went, was when I walked into a school in a village in northern Bihar, and they told me that this school used to just be boys during the day and girls in this community were not going to school. And now that they have power 24-7, always reliable, we can light the school and use that lighting to give girls a chance to go to school in the evenings. And if we can replicate that in Eastern Congo, in parts of South Africa and Northern Nigeria, we can literally replace places that uh, are suffering from extreme poverty and all the instability that comes with that, with places that are characterized by hope and optimism. And that's that's our goal. It sounds like there's we've made a lot of progress in the last decade, thanks to your efforts and those of many others. Uh, And there's reason for hope here. On the other hand, 
global warming, uh, climate change is obviously a massive concern that has the potential to make global inequality far worse. How pessimistic versus optimistic are you on this front? Uh, what do you think are the prospects of reversing or mitigating the impacts of climate change? Well, look, we don't have a choice. We have to get this right. And just to put what you just said in in stark relief, you know, when I started working on hunger and poverty in rural South India, you know, 25 years ago, there were probably about about uh, 14 or so percent of the total global population experienced hunger, not getting 2,000 calories of nutrition a day. That came down to six or seven percent just a couple of years ago, and now that's going up. And the estimates are we'll be back up at 14% again with a much larger global economy in 15 to 20 years because wow. of climate change. And it will single-handedly undo decades of progress in lifting communities up and out of poverty. And it will create the kind of migration, insecurity, and conflict that will define our future if we don't get this right. Of course, there's an injustice to the fact that the the wealthiest countries in the world have built massive economies with fossil fuels over the course of a century or more, and now we're reprimanding, uh, you know, low-income countries for uh, for doing so. On the other hand, I can see an argument that th there's an opportunity to skip. I mean, not not unlike with cell phones, you know, skipping landlines and going straight to cell phones because of the technological opportunity. There could be an opportunity for many of these. Um, regions to to skip the fossil fuel stage of development. And I, 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 I guess that's what you all have been have been trying to accelerate. Well, that opportunity is exactly what we're trying to accelerate, and to do it in a way that gives more equity and inclusion to these countries themselves and communities within them. So we're helping India, for example, transition and invest in building 50,000 electric buses so that municipalities there can shift from uh, diesel buses to electric buses. That'll also help create energy storage that can be used for their grids as they work to green their economy. We're rolling out 10,000 of these rural mini grids in Nigeria, which will replace dirty diesel generators that are both more expensive, more dangerous, more complicated. Yeah crushing their economic prospects and yep. polluting the atmosphere. So it's not just asking them to take on an additional responsibility. It's actually finding opportunities for growth and, uh, and opportunities that are not being serviced by a fossil fuels-based development strategy. Most ideas bounce off us, but some actually change us. If you want more of those ideas in your life, there's no better place to find them than the Next Big Idea app. We partnered with hundreds of the world's leading nonfiction authors to create audio summaries of their books. We call these summaries Book Bites, and our app features a new one every single day. You can listen to a Book Bite in 12 minutes or read it in five, there's no other place on the planet where you can listen to book summaries created by the authors themselves. And that's not all we have waiting for you when you download the Next Big Idea app. We've also got professionally narrated summaries of classic books, video and audio masterclasses, ad-free versions of this podcast, and tons of other member benefits. So what are you waiting for? Pause this recording, open your app store, and search for the Next Big Idea. There is no better way to get smart fast Download the Next Big Idea app right now. Well, Raj, coming back to your personal journey, you had a, a relatively brief stint in the private sector, right? Uh, you were so passionate about about this uh, this problem of energy poverty that you saw an opportunity to help to solve this problem while building an exciting startup and maybe 
making some money in the process. And at some point you found yourself in a, it's, I think the story is helpful, Raj, because there may be some listeners who are thinking, this guy's just a saint. He's just a perfect human being. And I'm just trying to, you know, put food on the table and get help my kids with their homework. But uh, just just to let our listeners know that you're not always a saint. Not you at found, all a saint. You, right. you, you, you found yourself uh, on the verge of buying a, a very expensive watch uh, in, a, in a luxury watch store during during this private sector bender that you had, as it were. <laughs> how, how, do, how do you think about that? How, and how do you think about your own journey about thinking about working in philanthropy versus private sector and your own motivations and what lights you up? You know, I'm not judgmental about others and what and what they choose. And I, I find it can be super fun to be in government. It can be super rewarding to be at a philanthropic institution at, like Rockefeller. And it can be just as exciting and interesting in the private sector. So I, I did have a small private equity firm for a short while when I left government. And the goal was to build energy systems in emerging economies. And we were fortunate to have some extraordinary uh, backers and supporters that were helping us make that happen. But what I did learn about myself was, you know, if I if I spend a lot of time with folks who are thinking about, you know, how to make more money, which is a legitimate thing to think about, then I start to think about that, you know? And if I'm with people who are talking about uh, fancy watches, then I start thinking about fancy watches. So the story I told in the book was I was, as a gift to my wife, going to get her a, an expensive, elegant watch from some airport in Europe. And just before making the final purchase, I called her to just make sure this was the kind she would like. And uh, and she was like, gosh, I'm." she was, at that time, she was running a charter school for kids in Washington, D.C. who who had very little resources and, and very tough circumstances. And all her passion was going into that. And she's like, what would make you think that I want to you know, wear a Rolex into my school every day. And it just kind of snapped me out of being absorbed by what I was seeing right around me and reminded me that at least in in the case of myself and, and my wife, Shivan, we had made some judgments that we wanted to have careers that were more in the social service space. Um, and that's just that's just who we are. So I, I'm by no means a saint, and I'm as as uh, prone to all the you know the things that everybody else is. But that was a moment when she helped snap me back into a, a, a place that was better for us. Well, it, it strikes me that the advice in your book, all the lessons from your book, you know, we've talked about some of them. You know, ask a simple question, open the turnstiles. You talk about like making it personal you know, uh, a willingness to give up control and partnership with other people. So much of it, I think, is actually quite applicable to the private sector. I mean, as a, as a serial entrepreneur, I found myself nodding my head and taking notes <laughs> in quite a few places. Do you feel that way? Do you think that a lot of these learnings are applicable to, to all areas? I think so. I think, you know, when you're taking risks and trying to do big, bold things and trying to do it in a responsible way and focused on data and performance and adjustments you make, the skill set is probably fairly similar, whether you're you know, in social service or, or in a private company or certainly for entrepreneurs and people with entrepreneurial instincts. So you know, make it personal was really about getting to know people and being vulnerable people with people so you can get to know their values and their interests and their long-term aspirations. That to me is a management tool that you can use in almost any capacity to just have stronger relationships with the people with whom you you work and collaborate. Um, keep experimenting was, was how I described the lesson learned from the Ebola crisis because we didn't know what yeah. was going to work and we had to test it. But gosh, I would think in any company, you're experimenting with products and strategies and approaches, and you want to have fast data telling you whether you're succeeding or failing quickly so you can make adjustments and go forward. So I think the playbook that we've tried to outline in the book, hopefully, is, is very applicable to people who are in the private sector. Wonderful. Well, Raj, there are many studies that have documented that, that generous people tend to be happier. Actually, of course, Adam Grant wrote this book, Give and Take, which is all about this. Now, if this is true, you must be a very happy person because <laughs> you've really 
you've dedicated your life really to to trying trying to solve problems at scale, alleviate suffering. Um, are, are are you a happy person? You know, I I try I try my best. I I. Uh... I, I'm happier after I've read one of Adam's books, for example, and have have a sense that there are uh, tools you can use to to keep working on it. I, I think happiness is something everyone has to work on uh, regularly and get help from others in doing so. So, you know, sure, I'm I'm very fortunate. I feel very lucky to have had the chances I've had. I have a wonderful family with amazing kids, and I have lots of reasons to be happy. Uh, but at the same time, I probably have the same struggles uh, anyone else does. And I think learning how to be happy takes genuine discipline and effort. And I read about it a lot. And I try to do the things that I learn about in some of those books. But I have to work at it just like anybody else. Yeah. Well, I, I like the idea that that generosity and kindness is is part of that that pathway, right? <laughs> I, well, I think it is. And, you know, I, I'll tell you a story. I When I was at USAID, and traveling around the country to make the case for America's broader role in the world, I went to a service at a church in Detroit, and I sat with uh, with a group of women who were taking up a collection for an orphanage in Rwanda. And this was a community where folks didn't have a lot of extra resources, but every week they came together and they made a collection and they ensured that it got to this orphanage in Rwanda. And I, I went back to my office and I said, we're going to make sure that orphanage gets electricity and water and food supplies and, and other, other recognition. But that story just stays with me because generosity is not necessarily uh, just super wealthy people giving. It's what we do day to day to express our values. And those mm -hmm. women yeah. in that church taught me a lot about generosity. Mm. Well, Raj, thank you for doing all that you've done in your career, that you're continuing to do, and for writing this book and, and inspiring all of us to, to, to make big bets. Uh, it's fantastic. Such an interesting conversation. Thank you so much, Rufus. It's just great to be with you. Raj Shah's new book, the first of many, I hope, is titled Big Bets, How Large-Scale Change Really Happens. I hope this conversation has inspired you to make a big bet of your own. If it has, but you need a little guidance on how to pull it off, send me an email, tell me what your big bet is. And if you're one of the first three people I hear from, I'll mail you a copy of Raj's book. I'm at podcast at nextbigideaclub.com. The Next Big Idea is a proud member of the LinkedIn Podcast Network. A big bet by the good folks at LinkedIn to share life-changing ideas with millions of people around the world. Today's episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Sound designed by Mike Toda. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week.